Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Ron Gill, welcome to the show. It's fantastic to have you. I'm very excited um, about the discussion we're about to have. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. Now, Ron, a little bit different here. Usually, I'm speaking to someone in the legal leadership team, the general counsel um, is typically the one. So, but you're a little bit different here. You've got a CFO um, background. Tell us a little bit about the Ron Gill story. How did you get started? And usually what I like to tease out here, what are some of the early kind of influences in your career, the crossroads? Um, And, uh, yeah, why don't we jump in a little bit about that and we'll see where it takes us. Right. Um, You know, I just won't go back too far, but I I graduated from from school in the 80s. It looked like uh, the whole world was going to rotate towards Japan. So I moved to Japan, went to grad school there and spent, spent a decade or so. There, that was really the starting place, and I I started well, at Sony. Don't, but then... don't go through that bit too quickly. I like I actually like oh, that. Okay. So so there's ten years. Well, firstly, you made the decision back then, uh, and I remember exactly. Of course, it is the eighties, and things were turning. Well, it absolutely right. did seem uh, like uh, didn't didn't in the end it didn't the world didn't rotate that no, way for very long. But it, it looked it like it was going to didn't. But but it's an interesting kind of foundation for your career. You've got ten years. Tell me a bit about some of the key learnings, if you like. How did that bit shape you? And and then and then let's let's go from there. Well, it was. I mean, the the, the keyest of the key learnings, as as they were, are all going to be cultural. Um, I was I I grew up in a tiny town in in South Texas, you know, a thousand miles from anywhere, and um, and so it was a big move, obviously, to just and I sort of landed in Tokyo with my suitcase and my you know two semesters of, of Japanese and, uh, and I love and, that. And I love that. And so uh, it worked out in the end, but, but, and that was really the reason to go to work at Sony, to go to work at a Japanese company, as opposed to go to work at a subsidiary of an American company. It was really to get steeped in it. And so I spent, I spent a number of years. I, I spent some time at Sony. I moved back to the States. I went to work for Sony in New York for a while. They then sent me back to Japan and I spent a few more years with Sony and it was great. It was a great experience. I certainly, certainly great for my language and sort of, sort of cultural uh, acclimatization. You know, to 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 be at a Japanese company. I think in the end, I learned that I I didn't want to work at a Japanese company. <laughs> you know, I think, and I was working at Sony, which was a very, it, it, again, it was a long time ago. Sony was an extremely hot company at the time. They would have been the, you know. What Google was, you know, uh, a, a few years back in Silicon Valley was like the company everybody wanted to work at. That was Sony at the time then, very hot company. Um, and and it was, a, it was in some ways the least, it was a very international company, the least, uh, very, the least sort of Japanese of the Japanese companies, the post-World War II company. Um, but in the end, it's a very, it's a very tenure-oriented culture. I said there was a point where I sort of looked where I was sitting and my boss who was 10 years older than me. And the only way for me to get from my seat to his seat was to age 10 years. And so I decided I didn't want to age 10 years in, in, in there. And so that's when, I, so I jumped to SAP in, uh, in Japan, actually, 
which was their Asian headquarters at the time. And that was when I, that was sort of my first move to enterprise software. It's the beginning of client server enterprise software. It's the mid nineties. And, and that's it. I've been pretty much in enterprise software ever since in, you know, uh, SAP, Oracle, Hyperion, NetSuite, um, all these big enterprise software companies and always in the, in a finance general management or, or a finance role, but so not, I'm not an engineer, um, but always at a software, pretty much at a software company ever since, a B2B software company ever since. And, and so my research assistant has, uh, my trusty research assistant has, has, um, has found for me, look at this, 2013, while working at NetSuite, so you were the CFO of NetSuite, of course, the San Francisco Business Times named you the Bay Area CFO of the Year for public companies with revenue up to $500 million. Not a bad little feather in the cap. Tell me about that period in your life because I don't know whether – I'd love to hear a bit more about the NetSuite time because ultimately, of course, um, and I think you were there when it was bought by Oracle. Tell me about growing that company and perhaps then the um, um, uh, then the acquisition by Oracle because it must yeah, have been a fascinating yeah. time. I was, I was lucky to catch a couple of technology trends in my life. So as I said, I joined SAP just as R3 is really kept getting traction. So, so the world is shifting from mainframe to client server, and that really took off. And, and SAP had, had a fantastic run there, um, which I was lucky to be a part of. And then and, and something similar was happening at NetSuite. When I joined, I, I, I was at Hyperion. We got bought by Oracle. And then I, and then I went to NetSuite uh, maybe a year before the ish before the IPO, right? And and that was at the beginning of what then became what seems the obvious wave now, which is SaaS, but at the time was less obvious. And we certainly spent a lot of time trying to sell people on the very concept of putting key systems in the cloud. And I think that 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 that's uh, that sort of played out where you don't have to do that particular sales pitch anymore. But um, so I entered not as CFO, but as sort of number two to the CFO, and I became CFO in 2010. And, you know, NetSuite, it's, it's actually a fairly relevant story to look back on now, because so NetSuite goes public in December of 2007. Uh, and the parallel would be a little bit like, you know, raising your last round of financing in the summer of 2021. Um, so the mar- markets are high. And you you put a lot of money in the bank, and having having so we IPO'd and and you know put uh, put put money in the bank at the time, and did what you do then, which is accelerate everything. We were grow we grew sixty some odd percent in two thousand seven, uh, sorry yeah in two thousand six, and then and then we do the IPO. We start to then accelerate investment because we're going to grow faster, and then of course get hit right in the face by the global the global recession. Yeah. Um, the great, the great recession, and so business slows down dramatically. You know, the 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 company's valuation at IPO was one point six billion. By the depth of the recession, the company was worth three hundred and change million. You know, so and there's obviously a ton of that going around right now, and it was really a good lesson that I think a lot of people are learning right now that. Your business's performance is not the only thing that determines your valuation. There's this other thing external to you, which is what the markets are doing. So uh, business slowed way down, but we were a SaaS company. One of the good things about being a SaaS company is that the revenue has a bit of a momentum of its own as long as you can keep, keep your customers. 
So we we slowed down, but continued growing, but but obviously growth slowed dramatically. Some of our biggest competitors that weren't SaaS companies were shrinking dramatically during those years. So relatively good, but still, it's painful to go from 60% growth to 9% growth in, in two it, years. It is. And, and if you were to shout out now, what are the two or three key lessons or pieces of advice you would give to to companies, CFOs, and more broadly experiencing that very scenario right now? Yeah, I think for, for us, the, the the most painful thing about the recession for us was was churn. Our, we went from a gross retention, so net retention is over 100%, but gross retention is in the sort of mid-80s going into the downturn and got as low as the high 60s uh, during during the worst parts of it. And it really was, we, we were very much mid-market focused at the time and our customers were just going out of business. It was a it was, a, it was a deep, long recession, and a lot of small businesses closed. So a lot of our, we had a lot of of, uh, of customer attrition that that no amount of great product or fantastic customer service would fix because it was just the nature nature of the install base. So I think um, one of the things that we got a lot better at during that time was the leading indicator of the leading indicator. Of course, we know that that. Uh, Churn is, a, is is certainly a, a leading indicator of a of, of revenue going down, um, but we got much better at what's the leading indicator of churn, um, and then and then often what's the leading indicator of that leading indicator, um, and then you know I I think the things that we did right we we did a pretty good job of retaining talent. I think there's there's a couple of things. Every company right now, as we as we sit here in late May. And the markets, uh, especially the tech markets, have have collapsed so much. I think everybody's starting really to get the message of you need to extend your cash runway. You probably need to decrease burn a little bit to just make sure you're not having to raise anytime very soon because that raise might be. Everybody's got that message. But I think the other things that, that we did was we really didn't lose any key talent. So we, we managed to hang on to key talent through that period, which I think is, is pretty critical. It's good. You're going to come out the other side eventually, and you want to have the key members of your, of your team in place. And then there were, you know, we, we were essentially during the year of 2008, we're essentially overstaffed like 2008 and early two, cause we, cause we had this hiring, you know, the, it turns out that the, the 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 Great Recession began in December two thousand seven, like as we were going IPO. But you did nobody sent you a memo in December and said the Great Recession has begun. You found out sort of three quarters later. You found out that the and of course, in the meantime, we were hiring like mad. So we managed to, although we were significantly overstaffed, uh, we managed to not. Uh, we did we didn't have to lay anybody off. We managed to really retain the key people, and I think then. In a period of being overstaffed, we, we we actually improved a lot of core processes. But all that said, and this, you know, I hope this is not uh, repeated in this cycle, but it remains to be seen. The coming out the other side for us was extremely slow. We slowed down into single digit growth in 2009. I think we grew 9% revenue in 2009. And then I won't remember the numbers exactly, but it was something like, you know, 9%, 12%, 18%. 21, you know, it was several years before we got back to 30 and, 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 and high 30s growth 
it took a long time coming out. Um, so, and, and, and sort of in the middle of that in 2010 is when I became a CFO. So I guess I was lucky that I was, I became CFO at the kind of at the bottom and, and, and rode the, uh, the, the, the there, there was hopefully only one way from there. <laughs> that, that's right. But, <laughs> well, there but, were, but there were what two are, ways, but at least we, yeah. we, we went the good one. Yes. Yeah, yeah, we went the right way. But, I mean, just thinking about thinking of that environment, which is I'm sure uh, the environment that's been experienced in the last um, couple of years at least, of a 60% growth rate um, and, then con- and then hitting 9%. <laughs> Um, that is um, an extreme. It's incredible contrast, but I love two the, years the, later. the yeah. That's the yeah, yeah. The deceleration and was the keeping fast the talent. The reacceleration was yep. slow. Yeah, was slow. Yeah, and if you were to hazard a guess, in the next couple of years, do you and you know don't have a crystal ball and whether or not we're going to go into recession? That's the that's the debate of the day. What's your what's your take? What's your take on the next couple of years, particularly for uh, and the impact on um, let's say high growth um, uh, tech and and software businesses? Yeah. We're I think there's no question we're in a better place than we were as the as the uh, two thousand eight nine recession began. I mean I think the, the there, there's a different set of problems and they're very real problems, but we. But there's some macro issues that we just didn't have then. We've got some issues now, inflation uh, uh, and, a, and, a, and, yeah, a war um, and, a, uh, and an interest rate environment that is unquestionably going to be rising for some time, which was, which was not the case uh, then. Um, but I think the business, businesses are in better shape now than we were then. I think sometimes it's, it's a little bit exaggerated. We all look at how far things have fallen. And you'll look at some you know, public SaaS stocks that have fallen 50 and 60 and 70%. But those numbers, everybody's measuring those numbers from a summer 2021 high. That was a, that was a very brief, very crazy high. And it's... Um, it's getting more painful to look at this every day, but I, I often am looking at it and just saying like, so how, how much gain did we lose from a time point of view? And you'll look at some of these stocks and it's like, oh my God, the stock is down 60%. But then you, I, I'll say like, okay, so when did we, when did we fall back to? How, how, how many years of gain did we just lost? And it's often like, oh, we fell back to spring of 2021's price. Correct. It's funny you say that. That's exactly the lens that I have when I look at that. Where I say, "Well, okay, so you've fallen back to where you were six months ago, twelve months ago," Um, and when you look at the graphs, they're typically pointed straight up, and up until you know, um, uh, certainly up until spring last year, and then kind of straight down from there. But it is, it was a very high acceleration. Um, it's almost exponential when you see those share prices, certainly since April 2020 or March 2020 when um, – so I think that's right. That's, that's a lens that's what that looks like the, the media misses. That's what looks like yeah. the anomaly. What really looks like the anomaly is the uh, April 2020 or thereabouts to, to fall of, of 2021. That period is the, is the super bizarre anomaly. The, I think, the, the, I, I think the that's right. The other thing is, though, you know, when we were going into the – there were just, there were not a lot of public SaaS companies going into the into the recession. There was only a handful, but at that time, uh, uh, well, two things. At that time, a a uh, a healthy growing SaaS company, 
might be growing 30 or 40 percent. Whereas now there's, there's some companies still, even at this point, still growing much faster than that. And it was at that point, like you, you'd be trading at seven times forward revenue, eight times forward revenue. And people thought that was nuts. And so we, we're, we're in a very different place now. I don't, I don't think we'll ever get back to, well, I don't think that I'll, I'll see multiples again, like we saw you know, last, last spring and summer, um, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see if we get all, although I think we're, we're now trading below the historical multiples for SaaS companies. The problem with historical multiples for SaaS companies is they don't go back very far. Okay. These companies haven't yeah. been around very long. So, so they the may, recession was, yeah, so they may well yeah, be, was 14 years ago. Yeah. yeah. So they may well be skewed too That's high right. because of, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. We don't actually know what a normalised position is, essentially, do we? We haven't had enough data to see what re- what good is really. Right. Look like, Hopefully, it's somewhere really in like. between yeah. seven times and forty yeah. times forward revenue. Yep, yep, yep. Let's shift gear a little bit, Ron. Tell me a little bit about with this um, in your role as CFO. Um, tell me about the relationships that you've had with the legal team. General counsel, more broadly, what does that look like? Um, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah. T- tell me about that. Well, I think I, I've, I've been lucky to, to work with some very good general counsels. I think from, what's the, is the plural of general counsel? General counsels? G- general counsels. I think so, yes. General, um, cou- <laughs> no, general counsels. I've, I've, so. yep. I've been lucky either whether as a CFO or even as a, as an audit chair on a board where you also spend a decent amount of time with, with general counsel to work with some, with some really good ones. And have been, and over my career, there've been times when legals reported to me, which is not necessarily something I'd recommend, but it's happened at, at, at times. And there's been times when, when you're just partnered CFO and GC are partnered. And certainly you, especially when you're a public company, those two are partnered very heavily and spend a lot of time together. So I think the good is I, I've, gen, I've been fortunate that that relationship has generally been very good and we've gotten along very well. And it's very much felt like as CFO and general counsel, we're sort of rowing in the same direction in terms of corporate governance and trying to keep the, the company on track and, and, and risk mitigation. So that's all been good. I think the bad for me has been more on the on the spend management side. So it's a little more tactical, but certainly... Um, and I think this, and in, in, in pursuits, uh, d- definitely a part of this. I think this trend is it's getting a little better. But in mo- for most of my career, legal spend is is a bit of a black box. And even if I have a great relationship with the GC, and I think it's 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 probably especially I don't know, maybe this is fair. Maybe, I was going to say it might be especially true at more of a mid sized company at the at the at the twenty person legal team, the in house legal team size that the GC's got the all of the um, relationships and engagements running in his or her head, as opposed to it being anywhere that I as CFO can examine. And that from a, and, you know, as a CFO, you really care, not just about the volume of spend, but about the predictability of that spend, the volatility of that spend. And, you, you know, the last thing you want as a CFO is a surprise of any kind. And that's if there's been tension in the GC relationship, at least for me, it's been over that. It's been 
at every quarter end, I have to send like a team of FP&A people in to sit with legal and figure out how much have we spent, how much have we committed to spend, when is that spending going to take place? Um, that that project has probably been the the, the point of friction. Um, and, and Ron, so your um, uh, we can call it out here. So you've joined the Pursuit Strategic Advisory Board. Uh, you're an operating part, of course, at Leaded Capital. Leaded Capital has a bit of an interesting um, pursuit. You, you, I've got no doubt you get tons of offers. Um, to sit on boards or strategic advisory boards um, without it being too much of a plug for pursuit. I'd just like to get, why would you say, you know what, I'm going to spend some time on this. This is of interest. What, why? Yeah, it's really because I'm interested in the solution to this problem. Having having lived it, like I said, it's a, it never spoiled the good relationship I had with GCs, but if there was a point of friction, that was it. And it was... Um, really from a from a from a a couple of, of points of view um, some of which I touched on one is just pure visibility there's no every other part of my organization every dollar spent I've got some visibility into it coming payrolls we know we've got contracts for those I've got purchase orders for everything else in my organization and there and there are there are some companies I don't think it's a, a majority that have purchase orders for for legal commitments, but it's not most. And so you often don't have purchase orders. And as I said, these these commitments are existing in uh, in the ether or in the heads of general counsel and assistant general counsel, and they're hard to get at. So that improvement um, I very much look for. And at the same time, not to, not to, not to, you know, malign those in the legal community, but I, there's, at least in my experience, there was a lack of discipline around the scoping of legal projects. And so at the RFP stage, and it's funny because I would uh, often at a company, especially a very large company, we would have a purchasing function that really required the RFP structuring of any large engagement. And often the biggest thing that was not flowing through that purchasing function, and, and maybe there are very good reasons maybe not to flow legal spend through a purchasing function that maybe the value add is not there. But what it meant was very poorly scoped projects. Very, the, the milestones aren't clear. The, the the deliverables aren't clear. It's hourly rate. And I don't know how many hours it's going to end up being and how many of those hours are going to be partner hours versus first year associate hours. And it's it was just an amorph, amorphous blob. And again, nothing the CFO hates more than big chunks of spending that have no visibility. So for me, it was a real problem that I experienced in industry. And I saw an opportunity for, for a, a product like Pursuit. It's now we'll get into the part that it's hard to keep from being a bit of a plug, but um, of it changing a couple of things in there. So one, and it's not your, it's not the primary thing that Pursuit really, you know, uh, sells on necessarily, but it does get some discipline in the structuring of the engagement at the beginning of the process. It's not just that I will then get multiple firms to, 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 to bid perhaps on it, but it's that it required me to sit down and actually lay out what the thing is going to be and put some fence around it. And then of course, like I would, I would be a big advocate for trying to get everything to go through the platform because then I've got some place outside of the GC's head 
where those engagements sit, where they can be examined, where, uh, and even, even if I or my, the finance organization was never in the pursuit tool, if I go to the legal team, they've got a source that says, here's where, here's where everything is. Here's where we are in these projects. Here's the scope of each. And so here's what we think the spend is going to be. Um, anyway, so I, I saw a need. Um, and it was a it was a pain point that I had I had really lived, and so that's that's why I got excited about it. So, so I spoke to um, only a few days ago, actually, and I assume it might get aired before this one. But to Eloise Epstein, of course, and Dr. Eloise Epstein is also a member of the uh, Pursuit Strategic Advisory Board, and she had a classic comment, and she and she described this. Well, I have to repeat it, and she and she called out to the GCs out there. She said, "Look." I know you think you are, but you're not a special flower. <laughs> so I thought because exactly what you're saying right now, the discipline that exists typically across most of the other functions, um, uh, legal had in the past, um, and to, to a large degree still does have an exception or an exemption. Um, and That's uh, right. And I think uh, yeah. that's a very good point. And I would, I would even expand it to say uh, not only is – perhaps the legal department, not, not as much a special flower as, as they would like to think. Law firms are not as much of a special flower as they would like to think. They're vendors selling a service that we need to go out. And of course, those, those vendors have reputation and experience and connection that all matters. But at the end of the day, they're vendors billing us for a service and I think there, there's a little bit, not that, I mean, not, not that we intend to blow up the whole industry or anything, but there's been just so much of that that's been on who are the, who's, you know, who's the one outside counsel for exec comp that the GC knows? Who's the one outside counsel for whatever uh, SEC security issue that the GC knows? And uh, it's been very tight and, and buddy, and there's very little objectivity in the in the selection process um and there's and there's just something healthy about expanding that a little bit making a little bit more supplier vendor relationship making it a little bit more objectively decided process yeah and and it's kind of hard to see how anyone can sensibly object to just that level of objectivity bit of transparency and the predictability as a CFO, and hopefully if we've got some CFOs listening right now, that's what you want. You just want everybody hates surprises. Um, in fact, the in-house legal teams hate the surprises when it comes from the law firm. So that was the one thing. Um, that's one of the key themes we hear from the in-house teams. There's nothing worse um, than um, a poor exercise or no exercise at the beginning in terms of scoping and then, and then getting that nasty surprise come in. Um, so one of the other things I have to say, and I've repeated it now a few times, um, uh, uh, there's a phrase that, um, uh, that you coined actually, when we, we caught up a few weeks ago and I loved it and I've repeated it a number of times right now, uh, both within pursuit and outside. And it was time to value. You said, Jim, there is something really about your, or pursuits time to value, and you've got to absolutely protect it. Don't let anything interfere it and work out. Essentially, how how can you how can you continue accelerating and doubling down on that? I love that phrase because I don't care whether it's legal tech or anything else. There are so many choices out there 
um, uh, when somebody's trying to operate or, or gain efficiencies in what they do, and there are so many choices about um, what technology or what solution to pick to solve what problem, um, and that's that's very much in the legal space right now when there's a whole lot of competing uh, priorities. So one great thing about that phrase that you coined, that's how when I'm having discussions now, that's what I talk about um, to the legal ops and the GCs. You've got a bunch of competing priorities. Think about what you can deliver and where your time to value equation is the strongest. Uh, because you don't want to spend 12 months, 18 months implementing something for kind of a, a difficult-to-measure ROI. So I don't know if you want to talk about that, but it's something that has really stuck with me. It's funny because the the, the and, 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 and some of the stuff that I have been talking about really is is value, like the, from the CFO point of view, is the, the grander, once we've adopted the platform fully and, and things are flowing through it, that I really get some of these benefits like visibility to the overall spend and that kind of thing. But this time to value concept came up because we were talking about, we're actually reviewing some pilots where the customer is literally doing the first project in the system, really just as a learning process. Like this is the first one we're going to do. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll put this particular job out. And we would see these incredible results in the pilot which is literally in the first you know, week of having the product, we're going to run this one thing. And we, we just, you can literally see the difference between the first bid from the firm we always use versus either the final bid from the firm we always use or the ultimate bid from a different firm. You could just see the difference in these. And it was just remarkable how immediate and sort of with a very first transaction, you're kind of paying for, for things. So that was, that was what was so impressive and and, 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 in, and incredible. And, and as I said, it has actually really impacted on the dialogue now that we have, both internally and externally. So I, I, I should thank you for that. And it's a real good focus too. Um, it's a real good focus, particularly for those who have got competing priorities and they're looking at all, all sorts of solutions to solve all sorts of problems. Um, even if, as I say, it, it, it's, it's not about a, um, legal, whatever it might be, it's just a great way to judge how to assess your priority and how to prioritise time to value. Think about time to value. So, um, yeah, I think it's going to be part of our DNA. <laughs> uh, Ron? Okay. I think it already um, was, by the way, and yeah. I, I just stuck I, th- I think on. you just are, honestly, I think you've articulated it, and I think, um, uh, yeah, it, it's a fantastic lens through which um, uh, to think about what you're doing, the discussions you're having, uh, and the messaging uh, that you're sending out there. Um, cool. Um, I usually wrap up, Ron, with three kind of favourite questions. My first one is going to be advice, Ron, to your 25-year-old self. Um, I I feel like my 25-year-old self was super lucky. And so I have a little bit of 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 a butterfly effect concern about changing anything that that guy does because i feel like i did the, ri- so the ripple theory yeah the ripple. you don't want to touch anything there. i don't want to touch anything yeah. because like i said you know i i made this what ended up being a very large bet on you know a, a couple of years of school in japan and then and then lots of years of working in japan on on the world rotating the way it looked like it was going to rotate in 1988 and it didn't but it worked out fine uh, you know it, it, it actually it worked out really well so i'm uh, if so, I'm, I'm hesitant to change anything that that guy did. 
if anything, I think for me, the risks worked out and they were, they were big, you know, big, strange, strange risks to move from small town, Texas to, to Tokyo in a, in a jump, um, was a, was a big risk. It worked out every, every time I've agonized over a career change, probably the agonizing was, was the right thing to do. I probably made the, I could describe it as a, as a thorough decision-making process. It was really more just agonizing, but they, but they, but they worked out all the big leaps worked out. And if it was a friend of mine pointed out to me that like every, every big successful change in career really comes with a lot of stress and a lot of stress in the decision. you you can never be sure you're always, it's always easier to stay with the, with the thing, you know, than it is to make a step towards something you don't know, but that's usually where step function improvement comes. It's funny. So the two most popular answers I get to that question, uh, and I think this will resonate, one is I just worried too much. Um, a lot of the worrying I did didn't actually matter. You call it big enough agonising. That's so easy yes. to say in hindsight, and of course it is. isn't it? Yeah, because yeah. the future's uncertain, you're ambitious, you want to make sure that your decisions are right, all of that kind of stuff. But the second one which I think is really um, – I, I have to say I keep repeating this when I'm speaking to those that are earlier on their career – was to take more risks. I, I always get, particularly from the GCs, I get, I just wish I took a few more risks. Um, and I was Because when I did take them, they actually paid off. Um, yeah, so – so I, I don't know whether that's kind of um, uh, general counsel specific, but um, I think the root. I think there's a survi- there's a survivorship yeah, bias in that in that answer. They're, they're probably you know, yeah. right, that, that's fair to point. Uh, that's a fair point. Um, but uh, I mean, I, I, I'm say, I say that as as having just essentially given the same answer myself. <laughs> correct, correct. <laughs> but I think there's a <laughs> the, the, there is something though about um, it, even the word risk. Um, is sometimes can be prohibitive, but it's actually to me, it's about making choices that you're leaning in, um, and they might not necessarily be the, the and they're not the safest choices. Put it that way. Um, the packing up, going to Japan, they're a little off um, the beaten path, but to me, that's where the kind of that's where the growth is, that's where the adventure is, and that's where the opportunity is. Um, so you know, so that that's something I. I I don't mind um, uh, talking to those that are a, a little bit younger in their careers about them. Um, okay, next thing, the hardest thing that you've done, personal or professional, that you're willing to share with us. Gosh, uh, I feel like I should have, should have given it some thought to this before. What is the... <laughs> um, I think... More than once, maybe I won't go into specific, but more than once, I've left a good job. And this is, you know, so uh, I'm sure there are harder things I've done, but but it, it really, it's, it's an echo of what we just talked about. More than once, I've left a good job where things are going well, and it'd be easy to stay for a move that I, I, I mean more than once I've left a company and then had like you know half a dozen execs come to me and say what are you doing you're crazy why are you leaving now you know um certainly anyone who quit Sony in 1990 whatever it was everyone was just like you're gonna do what you're gonna quit Sony and go work where for a German company and so more than once I've I've, I've left uh 
I've left a, a floating boat, you know, that, that that's working well for something for a rickety looking raft. Um, and, and again, it, 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 it's worked out and those have been always their, their tough decisions. And sometimes there's a lot of pushback. Um, but, but uh, I've done those in it and it worked out. And there's a lot of, and, and to me that kind of ties a little bit back in the wrist. I, I always say assess, and especially when you, at the time, um, and when you haven't had the benefit of essentially the, um, to see how a decision works out, it's hard. Sometimes you think it's the worst decision you could have made. I remember giving up, well, certainly giving up a, a, a career in Australia to move to the Middle East. Um, and I remember on day one when I arrived, um, it was 118 degrees outside. Um, I walked into an office. I didn't have a single client, a single um, a connection, no brand, no reputation. And I sat there and I thought, I didn't know the laws. I didn't know the language. And, I, and it dawned on me, I thought, what the hell have I done? I've, I've left the most secure. I was um, really in a secure position, having a fantastic income. And, but with the benefit of time, and the next six years, it was the it was the pinnacle of my professional career, um, and the most enjoyment that I had. So I always say, at the time, what can seem like the worst is in the worst thing that could have happened to you ends up opening up opportunities, doors, whatever it might be. So always assess something by reference to yes. time, let it play out, um, because to me that's often where the learning and the growth and the real potential is. That's right. It, it, every it seems like almost every big decision comes with buyer's remorse at some point. So usually that like, take that new job. Usually there's a point, you know, three weeks in where you're Go, just like, oh, oh my god, what did I, what did I do? Yeah. You know, almost almost everybody I've ever hired, even those who turned out to be fantastic, there's a point a couple of weeks after you hire them, two months after you hire them, where you're just like, I'm not sure I did the right thing here. Um, and so you gotta. Sometimes your instinct is right and you, you didn't do the right thing. But, but yeah, a lot of times it's just you just got to get to the other side. Last question. Anything that keeps you up at night now? Um, it keeps me up at night now. I mean, I've, I, you know, I have, I've got, uh, I have kids. And uh, so certainly just everything, two boys is, is right. And, and one of one is, uh, is, is sort of 12 years old and the other one is, uh, is in high school. And so, uh, what the world is going to look like for them. I certainly, I certainly concerned about one of them will go off to, to college. And, um, and it seems like I, you know, I think it's definitely a time where you still need to go to college for my, for my older one. Although, it's, you know, he's a computer science guy and it's very questionable as to whether he'd learn more computer science in or out of college. But I think at, at this point today, you still go to college. I'm pretty sure that's still true for my 12 year old when it comes time. I don't know if that remains. And then, of course, you worry about the the the, the macro economy and how big I, you know, it's these are they're very mund worrying about your kids is something that every parent does, I think, all the time. I, you know maybe because of my background, I very much worry about the macro economy, not about, I'm not worried about the fact that SaaS stocks are down, you know, from the summer high. I worry about the amount of, of debt the United States has created and, and where it's, where, where it's headed. 
and, and what does it what does it mean for our kids? Yeah. I mean, what does yeah. it mean and for all mean of our, our kids? kids? Yeah, um, we've borrowed uh, a lot uh, of money from these kids. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're, what we should be doing, it's funny, that's exactly what we've done. We should be paying forward all of the the benefits that we've had, the um, advantages, but it doesn't seem like we've that done, we're doing that We've at done all. the opposite. Yeah, we've, we've done, done the opposite. opposite. Um, uh, like a bit of a sombre note to finish that's up on. That's a bad note to end on. That's right. But, Who wants um, to listen to Ron, this? Yeah. That's right. Ron... <laughs> Fantastic having you on board. I really appreciate that. I've had a fantastic, um, fantastic time and a blast. So thanks for joining me, Ron. All right, Jim. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.